0: So when you ask people to send in their questions about faith, and you're like, "Oh, please, God, no! Don't have them sending questions about that." That's exactly what everyone sends in questions about. Um, so we're going to um, talk about sex and um, different aspects that sex kind of brings up in our lives, um, because there are a lot of questions about. It. I mean, I, so far there was like maybe sixty or so questions that came through. And uh, more than half were related to sex, sexual identity, gender identity, stuff like that. Now, we're not going to cover it all. We'll cover a bit of a chunk. Um, but if you have questions, uh, definitely send them in. And even and often an even better venue for talking about some of these things, uh, especially if there are personal connections with what comes up, is a just a normal one-to-one conversation. Um, but all that said, um, we are talking about sex, porn, and relationships, and all sorts of things um sex is a thing that we have a problem with we all have problems with sex we love it but we can get caught in its control because sex is a very powerful thing like culture's definition of beauty we're beheld by it, but also we're like kept down by it and like controls us right russell brand has this quote about pornography he says porn is a drug It's not good for me, it represents voyeurism, an obsession with looking at women instead of interacting with women, objectification, the fear of true intimacy. I don't like porn, but I haven't been able to make a long-term commitment to not looking at it. It's affecting my ability to relate to women, myself, my own sexuality, my own spirituality. And uh, Billie Eilish has recently um, kind of spoken about porn as well. She wrote, I think porn is a disgrace. I used to watch a lot of porn, to be honest. I started watching porn when I was like 11. I think it really destroyed my brain, and I feel incredibly devastated that I was exposed to so much porn. She added, and then this is in the Guardian, said, um, saying that she suffered nightmares because some of the content she watched was so violent and abusive. Addiction, destruction. We have a problem with this thing. Now, historically, the church has had its own problems with sex as well, and the message that the church is often kind of given out, if they give any message at all, is that sex is bad and never do it. It's a horrible thing. I mean, if you must, you gotta have kids, so I guess you gotta do it once or twice. But don't do any more than that. Don't enjoy it, definitely don't enjoy it. But really, because the church is so scared about talking about this, which I completely get, um, we don't say anything about sex. And then we're left to kind of, everyone to sort it out on their own. So like Jesus, uh, we're called not to be nice first, but to break cultural taboos when they come up in order to cultivate a thriving community. And that includes talking about sex in church. And probably no one's like, I would love for my pastor to talk about sex to me. No. Now, we do this because whether you're in a traditional conservative culture or a progressive liberal culture, we as human beings have a problem with sex. All of us do. And Jesus knows this better than we do. And he's here to help us. He's not here to wag his finger. He's here to help us. Now, normally the introduction to a sermon is meant to catch like, attention, to, get to, bring, to bring people in, but I could tell even as Kathleen was reading it, it was just like silos, like, oh, we're gonna talk about this? Did, that, did it just say that? Oh my goodness. Um, so I think we're probably already there. Now, what, this, is, this is what we're gonna attempt to do, is do a very brief overview of what Christians believe with respect to sex. This is not me defending something, this is not defending Redeemer's belief, this is talking about what the Bible says about sex and our sexuality. Uh, and what we're going to see is we're given an image of the kind of humans uh, that we can be, the kind of humans even us as sexual creatures are called to be. And inevitably, there will be questions that won't be answered. Uh, on the bottom of every slide here, redeemeramster.com ask is an anonymous form that you'll get. Uh, that anonymous form comes to my phone via an email, and I'll interact with those questions as well. There's also more questions at the end. There'll be loads of questions. We're not going to get to answer every single one, and maybe what I will do is equally let everybody down. Um, But uh, we'll try and get to as much as we can in just one little sermon. So let's start with saying the obvious. The most basic uh, Christian biblical teaching about sex is that it's really good. Sex is good. That's what Christians are called to believe. Who created sex? God created sex. That's what we're taught in the Bible, that God is the one who created sex. In Genesis 1, God created male and female, and that means male and female parts. And if you think this is awkward already, just wait. It gets really worse. I promise you it'll get worse. Um, the great thing, though, is I have a level of like, dealing with like, a threshold of awkwardness that's up here, where most people's like, normal thresholds are like around here, so I'll just be talking about weird stuff for today. Um, Genesis 2, God presents adam and eve to each other they don't have clothes on they're naked they're there and then what is the guy there's the very first love song is composed the first poem when the guy sees the woman and she's naked and he's naked a naked adam sings a love song to a naked eve in front of god the way adam and eve lived would really make us blush we think we're kind of like liberal and progressive i think they were probably a lot more liberal and progressive than we were no shame there's no shame there completely naked and then um, there's a whole book in the Bible called the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Um, and this is a, uh, a wife to her husband or a husband to a wife. Uh, and it gets very interesting. Uh, here's a couple of verses from chapter 7. Now, this is a husband to his new wife saying, "'How beautiful you are and how pleasing my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit.'" May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. This is in the Bible. Like, God thinks sex is good. Shall I go on? Okay, yeah, let's do it. Uh, So, (laughs) chapter 5. This is a woman to her new husband. This is right before they're going to have sex. His arms are like rods of gold set with topaz, His body is like polished ivory decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. This is describing a man waiting for his lover right before having sex. And if you're wondering what polished ivory means, yes, it means that. Exactly what you think it means. This is in the Bible. It's a good thing. Sex is a good thing. I'll spare you more of Song of Songs. Uh, But there's an idea out there that Christians, or even like different conservative groups can have about sex that first that is not good that's a very unChristian belief that's not what the bible teaches for christians who believe that they just need to repent and say oh actually maybe sex is actually a good thing and really that's not something that we don't know we all know it's good to be holy uh, in those kind of groups means to never marry right to stay a virgin because doing anything with your body that you enjoy that much certainly can't be true right but the bible teaches something else it gets even better than just kind of the physical experience of sex. Physically, yes, it's great. Emotionally, it's great. And God designed a good thing to be good. In Ephesians 5, uh, there, there's a talk about what the marriage relationship ought to look like. In verse 25, um, <coughs> Paul, who's the author of Ephesians, says, "'Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her.'" That's, that's a loving, all-in kind of thing. In Ephesians 5:28, says, "'Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies.'" Which would be very kind of, that's not how the world worked then. It's not really how most of the world works today. In Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Sex isn't just a physically pleasurable thing. This is a cosmic reality. It's a cosmic thing. There's a connection here between our sexual lives and our spiritual lives. You can't divorce them, they're connected. And the connection is that when someone marries another person, nothing's held back. They're like one flesh. So sex itself is the physical acting out of that one fleshness, but there are also other, other aspects of being one flesh. Financially, you're all in together. Emotionally, you're all in together. Personally, you're all in together. Spiritually, you're all in together. Married people are called to be one together in, in all aspects of their lives. And the mysterious spiritual reality being reflected here, I mean, this is Paul saying this is a profound mystery. Like, it's gonna be mysterious to us if it was mysterious to Paul. This mysterious spiritual reality being reflected here is that sex is an image of Jesus and his church. Jesus is the bridegroom, and we, as his church, are the bride. The act of sex is so great, not just physically, but spiritually, it's reflecting this cosmic story of Jesus and his church being one. And Jesus isn't like sort of one. He's completely all in with this church. He's not like, oh, I'll give you my body, but I'm not gonna give you, you know, the other parts of I me. Mean, no, no, he, he's all in. And that's why sex is supposed to be all in as well. And just like sex, an act of love creates new life. This is true of the Christian story, and this is why it's also true of our own sexual stories. So the Christian view of sex is that it's good, even better than probably most people would think, better than the right thinks, better than the left thinks. I mean, in a liberal progressive culture, sex is seen as good, but not that good. To say like your physical life is connected to your spiritual life, that just sounds weird. Sex is meant to be given away as we feel, and and when we decide, it's very self-focused. When I feel it's right, I'm gonna do this. And also in traditional conservative cultures, sex is not seen as good as much as it just kind of might be necessary for having kids to relish in the goodness of sex just doesn't feel right, so it's often not really talked about. See, the Bible isn't liberal, the Bible isn't conservative, the Bible isn't progressive, the Bible isn't traditional. It can't be pigeonholed in such small terms. So We like to pigeonhole the Bible or Christianity or a certain kind of sexual morality in certain kind of small ways because it makes it really easy for us either to believe it or not to believe it. But the Bible can't be pigeonholed that way. Christianity is something much bigger. So the first point is that Christians believe that sex is good, and most people don't see it as good as maybe Christians ought to see it. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians know this and we get it and we're perfect, okay? That's true of of everything, but this is the teaching of those who follow Jesus. This is the teaching that we surrender to and aspire to live out. So sex is good. The next next thing we're going to look at is sex is powerful, because sex is such a good thing, we need to use it well, otherwise we get used by it. It's a powerful thing. And if we're not in control, if we don't channel it right, it will kind of be in control of us. The way that Russell Brand and Billy Eilish talked about pornography. Sex is so powerful that if our desires aren't channeled rightly, we can kind of be tossed around. A good thing used in the wrong way becomes a destructive thing. And because God knows that we don't have all the answers, he knows that we need help in living a way that would allow people to thrive, he told us how best to channel our sexual desires. And God teaches us how to make the most of this really good thing. And so this is where um, one of the readings come, uh, come into play. So we're going to look at that one Corinthians passage first that Kathleen read for us earlier. <clears throat> I'm just going to read this, explain it, and read it, we'll kind of walk through it as we go, and then we'll come up with some bigger ideas from it. Uh, so this is verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now sometimes this can be a list, this is a misinterpretation by the way, of an entrance examined to heaven. Like, these are the kinds of people that God likes, and these are the kind of people who God doesn't like. These guys get in, these other people don't. That's not really what this is. Also, that's not really Christianity. That's just moralism. That's a different religion altogether. That's moralism. Here, Paul is teaching about the kingdom of God. He's not saying about anything about heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is something that we're looking forward to being more fully fleshed out, but the kingdom of God Jesus taught us is something that is here now as we live out our lives. It's something that we get to live into. So here, Paul's talking about the kingdom of God, not just future oriented but now in the present. And the kingdom of God is the teaching of how to be this new way to be humans. How it, what now, not just in the future, but now. People who have been renewed by Jesus, called to, be a part, or, or called to be part of renewing the world, that's what the kingdom of God is. This kingdom is, as Paul says, he calls it an inheritance. Do you not know the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? How do you inherit anything? Not through doing something, but through your relationship with someone. So there's an inheritance here, talking about the kingdom, not a list of moral do's or don'ts, although there is an aspect of that, but that's not the main thrust of the passage. Now, when we read this, we will focus on a few things. We're going to focus on the sexual things first, but we won't. And if we do that, we're going to miss the reality of greed being in there, of gossips being in there, slanderers. That means, have you ever gossiped ever, ever in your life? Yeah. Well... You're not, You're on that list. Have you ever slandered someone? You know, um, the uh, the swindlers. Well, I've never really swindled anybody. A swindler is someone who, through legal business practices, was ruthless towards other people. So something completely legal, but you're basically taking advantage of other of somebody else because you're in a powerful position with business. Has anyone ever done that? Have you ever been a part of a company who's done that? Have you ever talked about someone? Have you ever been greedy ever in your life? This is a list of what it means to not live in the kingdom of God. So sexual things are the same with any other kind of things. Everything listed here is about putting one's own needs above building up someone else. That's the main kind of idea of the list. And I know no organization, I know no institution that would see all those things listed as equally bad. Nothing else exists out there that would see all those things listed as equally bad. Progressive and liberal cultures will laugh at the sexual morality stuff. Conservative cultures will obsess over the sexual morality stuff and all of them miss out on the greed or the swindling. I mean, also, how many Christian communities actually act as if all these are equally bad? This is one reason why we don't really talk specifically about sexual immorality. It's the first time we've ever done it at Redeemer. Because we don't think it's the one sin, sin to like, single out among others. I hope, though, at Redeemer, we can be open with where we don't measure up because all of us don't measure up. We're all equally um, in need of Jesus to change us. And there is no other organization that sees this very short list in the same way that Christians do. So let's, okay, let's continue reading here in 1 Corinthians uh, because Paul picks up two perspectives towards sexual- sexuality in his culture that still exist today. Remember, this is talking about what it means to live in the kingdom of of God, and um, we, we really haven't changed very much over a couple millennia as people, and that's what verses 12 and 13 in chapter 6, see Paul here, he's quoting this Greek thought, he says, you say, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both, so he's quoting these Greek philosophers, he's this isn't a Christian teaching, sex isn't a problem, as what these philosophers are saying, uh, it's just an appetite, just like a physical thing, it's just like eating food, so if I feel like I need to have sex and I'm just going to have it, like what's the big deal? It's just like a stomach pain. It's a sexual pain. Just, this is the view that just the physical reality needs to be taken care of. It's a very low view of sex and also a very low view of our bodies. He continues on this in these next couple of verses. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Now, at first reading that, you're like, that seems like a weird jump. He's talking about, like, sexual morality and then, like, the Lord for the body. Like, what's going on here? Basically, what Paul is saying, our physical bodies actually matter. Our physical bodies actually matter. Jesus' physical body was raised. Our physical bodies will be raised as well. And because we are whole human beings, what we do with our physical body has connections to all other parts of ourselves. Our sexuality is connected to our spirituality Which is connected to our emotional lives, and and so on and so on, and to divide ourselves into separate ways of living is to not live as a whole person, and that's again the problem that Russell Brand and Billy Eilish kind of put their finger on. It just it felt destructive because you have to give yourself here, but not fully yourself. So that's that's one view that continues to pervade today in Christianity goes against that view. And then there's the, the other side, and this is more the traditional side. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 1 and 2, it says, now for the matters you wrote about. So Paul's writing a letter. Um, Paul did his own version of Explore Sunday, apparently, and they were asking him questions, and he's writing them uh, what his thoughts were. Uh, so they said to Paul, it is good for a man to not have sexual relationship with a woman. But Paul is saying, but since there, you guys are having sex anyway, like, go have sex and enjoy it. But since sexual morality is occurring each man should have a sexual relation with his own wife and each woman with her own husband so there's the group that says sex is just an appetite and there's a the group that says sex is dirty and they wrote to Paul saying like shouldn't we like basically not be having sex and Paul's like no like have sex people like you know it's good right like what's the deal so sex is powerful and it's good and Christianity teaches that because those are both true you just can't do it with anyone and that's what Paul is getting at with this prostitute stuff. In 1 Corinthians 6:15 and 17 he says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? He's so speaking to Christians here. So I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute never. And do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Again, there's that connection between physical and spiritual lives. Paul's saying you just can't have sex with a prostitute or anyone else because you're writing a check that your body that you, you're trying to cash with your body completely, but you can't. You're holding back those other parts of your life. Sex is the symbol of becoming one flesh, and that's just not a physical reality. It's a whole, orbed, one-person-ness. One flesh in all of its meaning. One in finances and spirituality and emotional life and decision-making and all the things. So to have sex with someone you're not married to requires someone to divide themselves into different pieces. And that is not good for us. That stops us from being whole. Sex is meant to do the opposite. It's meant to make you whole. But it's easy to use it in order to destroy ourselves and to, to destroy that wholeness. Sex reflects the complete union of marriage. And by having sex outside of a marriage relationship be it a prostitute or whatever else, you're selling sex short, you're selling yourself short, you're selling another other person short as well. You're just thinking basically how to satisfy your own needs instead of building up other people. Now I stole um, this illustration from someone else because I think it was helpful. Uh, table salt, does anyone know what two elements make up table salt? Sodium Chemistry. Yeah, sodium and chlorine. Is it chlorine or chloride? I don't even, right. chlorine, right. So it's not like salt is two piles, one of sodium and one of chlorine. Salt is the two things together. It becomes a new thing, N-A-C-L, all together. These two together make a new thing. It's not like salt is separate or it's like sort of intermingled but not. It's completely intermingled. It's a union. Sex is meant to make us one in the way that salt is one when two different things come together. So what does Paul tell these people to do in 1 Corinthians? This church that's Having all sorts of, I mean, this church at this church Corinth had all sorts of weird kind of things going on, and we didn't get into all the weird kind of sexual things they had going on there. But what he says at the end of, uh, towards the end of our passage there in verse 18, is he tells the church there to flee from sexual immorality, to run away from it. He says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And then he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you received through God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So if you're a Christian, your body is a temple of where the Holy Spirit lives. You are not your own. As much as we surrender our spiritual lives to the Lord, we surrender our physical lives to the Lord because it's one life. We don't have multiple lives. We only have one. Now, it might be here, that you're like, but wait, when are we gonna talk about issues related to people who identify as LGBTQ plus or anything else? Some here uh, really want to come strung down and talk about the horrors of our society. Some here want to talk about um, how we need to um, be more open to people from other backgrounds, and we're, we will talk about those things, but let me broaden the scope just a little bit um, and basically bring it to all of us because we all have problems with sexual, with, with our sexuality. It's not like, oh, those people have it, or those particular people do. All of us do, regardless of however you identify, however, either gender identity or sexual identity, wherever you are, we all have problems with this. And this is exactly what Matthew goes to that Kathleen read for us in uh, Matthew 20, Matthew 5. So this is the Sermon on the Mount, basically Jesus' big sermon, on this is what the kingdom of God living looks like. And this little section that we have here, he says this. I'm going to read it again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So if you thought the only people who have issues with sex are people who are having sex, think again. It's... Or people who are having affairs even. or Jesus digs a bit deeper. That's a heart issue. Looking at someone lustfully holds the same level of guilt as someone who's going to have an affair or whatever kind of sexual thing going on. And what lust is, is not a a first look, but it's like that second look, that third look. It's that fantasy that you kind of bring up in your head when you're tired or just want to escape. Lust is an oppressive desire for someone else to fulfill your physical needs. It's really, it's, a, it's, it's an oppression. There's no thought of building that other person up. You're, you have to objectify that person if you're gonna lust after them. You have to basically reduce them to a pile of flesh in order for, them to, for, for you to lust after them. Objectification, especially, but not limited to men objectifying women, has been a problem as long as there have been humans around. And this is where pornography lives. I have loads of stats about porn. We're not gonna bring them all up, but here's the thing about it with pornography, you're using someone to fulfill that cosmic hole in your soul. And it's called an addiction for a reason because it does not satisfy you. You have to keep on going back to it. Talk to anyone who has had a, an actual real pornography addiction, not just someone who looks at it from time to time, but actual real pornography addiction. It has to be more intense, has to be more of it. It's, it's, it's a soul-destroying thing. No one enjoys that. It leads to shriveled lives of desperation. And that's where lust leads us. I'm not saying that if you lust, that's where you will all go, but that's, that's basically what lust is, using others and being used up, used up ourselves. Now, if you grew up in a conservative or traditional community, maybe even a church, you might think uh, what we're about, what the church is about, is only for cisgendered, opposite-sex attracted people only. And here in England, preferably white, preferably male. You probably also, though, didn't talk a lot about sex, but if you did, there was probably a level of condemnation that didn't lead to people being open and vulnerable who come from different kinds of backgrounds than cisgendered and and heterosexual. By the way, cisgendered means uh, you um, identify personally with the sex you were born with at birth. Heterosexuality is um, being... Well, you know what heterosexuality is. Or instead, um, maybe, instead, so maybe you don't have the, uh, like the surrogate parents that are traditional conservative, maybe your surrogate uh, spiritual parents are more progressive and liberal, in which case it's all about freedom and the evil people are, is anyone who wants to take any kind of freedom away. But Christianity is neither of those things. It's a group of people living out a rebellion against both of those things. See, Christianity says everyone, everyone has a problem with their sexuality, because none of us are whole by ourselves. All of us have problems, whether you have a family and you look the part, whatever the part is in your culture, or not. The problem resides in our hearts, and who can fix their own heart, let alone someone else? Nobody can. And can I also say, for people who come from any background that is not heterosexual or cisgendered, Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or however else one might want to identify their own gender or their sexuality, the church is a place for you as much as a place for anyone else. The church is a family of people stumbling towards faith together, and nobody here has it right. Nobody here has, is whole in themselves, but we all follow the one who will one day make us whole and is in the process of doing that. And Jesus has some really serious things to say about religious people who look down on people who don't match up to some kind of moral code. Jesus calls them vipers. He calls them mother killers, which is a way for basically to say something that sounds like mother killer today, only then. That's what brood of vipers kind of meant. He, he says they're full of dead men's bones. Jesus cares a lot about religious people not acting high and mighty and self-righteous. So if if, that, if you identify that way and you have been hurt in the past by people coming in the name of Jesus and not acting like it, I am really, really sorry. And I hear those stories as often as other things. It's horrible. And let me if, I, if it's possible for me to apologize on the behalf of them, please let me apologize. Not everyone who says they follow Jesus act like it, and I'm really sorry you got caught up in their hypocrisy. I hope you can find that this church might be a bit different, that it could be a place of healing and discovery of what God calls us to. And, and maybe even more broadly on that, the recent history of the church over the past century with people who come from gay backgrounds, people who identified as lesbian or gay were kicked out of their homes, they're kicked out of the church, and so they're basically living life on the street, and they, which is a horrible way to live, selling their bodies in ways in order just to basically to get food. People didn't like doing that, as nobody does, and so they set up places for like safer places for them to live, called gay villages. And now the church condemns the fact that gay villages exist. Why do gay villages exist? Because the church was not open to begin with. So we have that guilt on us, and that is a, a, a priority on us to move forward and and not be surprised when the LGBTQ community is suspicious of us. We were the mob with stones in hand, just ready. But the good news. For those who are hypocrites, uh, as well as for those who are trying to figure out what life is all about, is that Jesus makes us whole. Because one of the problems we have in dividing ourselves, uh, is destroying the oneness with, uh, within ourselves or with other people, is that we need somebody to put us back together. We can't do it ourselves. And this is exactly what Jesus does. And now, after we get a list of the types of people who don't add to or participate in this wholeness of life in 1 Corinthians, we read this in verse 11. And this is what some of you were, past tense, were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These are people, the church is full of people who used to be uh, characterized by greed. He used to be characterized by ruthless business practices. He used to be characterized by living their life out through freedom and their sexuality. But now, through the work of God and not ourselves, we get to do something else. We get to live for other people instead of ourselves. Because the kingdom of God is something that we inherit. We only inherit something through means of a relationship. Through our relationship with God, all the parts of us that are broken, including our sexuality, everyone's sexuality, has been remade through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. That means we get to be whole all the parts of our lives, including sexuality. We get to be whole with God because we're one with God. Paul says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't ask us to be good and to come to Him uh, in our guilt and shame. He came to us. And He recreates us so that we can be unified with God, like a marriage, like the physical act of sex, of sex itself. We also get to be whole within ourselves ourselves. When we do things with our bodies that are disconnected from all the other aspects of our lives, we're broken inside. And this is what Jesus is after in Matthew 5. Our fractured hearts, left to their own, left to destruction. Jesus says, he uses the word hell here. That word hell is translated from a word that basically means a dumpster fire. There was this, like this, uh, this rubbish heap outside of Jerusalem that was eternally on fire because rubbish kept on getting thrown into it. That's, how, that's what Jesus wants to save us from. He doesn't want us to be disintegrated and burned up he wants us to get to wholeness a disconnected fractured self is a dumpster fire in the present and in the future jesus says it's better to go without an eye or without a hand basically do what you need to do in order to avoid that it's better for you to take out just just this one small part of your of yourself so that your whole self doesn't get burned up and when we're led by our own desires it's a dumpster fire of oppression and objectification that's why it's how we live and we get to be whole with another see christian teaches that because sex is so good and so powerful it needs to be channeled in the right way and in the right context as christians we're called to surrender to how god calls us to live instead of how we'd like to choose life for ourselves we follow jesus of nazareth we don't follow jesus of good ideas or jesus of of whatever's going on in the moment we follow jesus of nazareth who lived and actually said things and now we get to read them and Christianity teaches us that sex is best enjoyed in the context of marriage, and sex outside of that context brings destruction. Now maybe you hear all this and you're thinking, well, this is all based on the Bible. Like, can we really trust that? Like, what's the deal with that? That's actually what we're going to be talking about next week, because there's a good amount of questions that came in through that. Like, what about, it was written so long ago, these different translations and denominations. Well, um, if you're like, I don't believe this because if this is based on the Bible, that's all bunk. Well, we'll talk about um, uh, the Bible next week. And uh, if what God says is true, here's this, we're all gonna be offended, every single one of us. If you aren't offended by God, you're worshiping yourself. You have to be offended by God because he's different than us. Also, if what God says is true, that means we get to be a place where broken people are transformed. If, God, if what God says is here, that's what we get to be. Where disconnected people get to be whole, that's what we get to be a part of. It will cost you some freedom. Yes, it will, just like when you get married. You give up freedom when you get married because you want to devote yourself to this person. You give up the possibility of having sex with other people because you want to have sex with this person. You give up the um, financially, financial commitments to someone else because you're going to be financially committed to each other. And the reason why you do that is because you want to grow in meaning. You want to grow in love. You want to grow in joy. And Jesus, knowing that we can't fix ourselves or really fix each other, he does that work for us. His death on the cross allowed us to be transformed so that Paul can write something like, that's how some of you were, past tense. Now, I may, not be, I may not be perfect, and I may still do those things, but that's not really the person who I am anymore. I'm a different kind of person. Jesus' resurrection means triumph over death. So the hell that we create for ourselves on earth and the destruction that comes is overcome by Jesus. And after Jesus' resurrection, he sends his Holy Spirit. Not in the air, not in your home, not to a building, not to a a gathering or a service, but here in us, in our hearts. That's where heaven and earth meet, because that's a temple. That's that's where God resides. And through the work of God himself in you, he says, I am making all things new, starting with you. So let me pray, and then we'll get to more questions that I'm sure will come in. God, we thank you that uh, you have given us your word. Lord, I confess I don't always like it, and I don't always understand it, and some of these things are difficult to, to understand and difficult to agree to, even difficult just to talk about without, Lord, with the fear of offending someone or saying something in, in a way that wasn't meant. Jesus, I pray that you will take our broken, stumbling attempts at following you and through your work transform them into something more, something better. I pray that we, as a church, would be a healing, loving place for people who come from any background. And Lord, in the, place, in the places where we are living out that self-righteous, kind of pharisaical kind of lives, God, I pray you put that burden on us to change, that we would bring our hypocritical lives to you as much as we bring anything else to you. We pray that you would work in our lives, you would continue to do that work of making us whole. We pray in your name, amen. Now, if you hadn't had um, uh, a chance to send a question in, you can send a question in there. Remember, it's anonymous, so don't worry. I'm not going to know who it is. But there were also, like, loads of other questions in here that I'm just not, I mean, I'm not going to get to all the, these are all the questions. Like, that's going to be impossible. Um, but there were a few others that um, I did want to bring up. Uh, someone did ask if sex before marriage is sinful. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to spend loads of time. These are going to be, like, quick-fire Q&As. Yes, it is. We can t- if you have question, more questions about that, you can um, send it in there. And if, if you also, if you want me to get back to you, you have to put some kind of contact info, otherwise I won't know. Okay, does God view sexual sin as worse than other sin? No. If he doesn't, then why does the church make sexual sin out to be so much worse? Because we're a bunch of hypocrites. We're a bunch of Pharisee hypocrites that want to feel better than other people. That's really the only reason. I hope Redeemer hasn't acted this way, um, though that's a trend with conservative and trad- traditional cultures and communities. Here. some will say sex doesn't matter, some will say sex is the biggest thing, and both of those people are wrong. Okay, hi, I noticed some of the literature on the evils of pornography, but not on the evils of drink. How come? I guess they probably mean talking about getting drunk. Um, we do have a book out there about pornography, and there's so many individual things we could have out there on different kind of individual sins in, in lives, but um, I don't think people get drunk as much as they use pornography in our church. I think that's probably the reality. And pornography is something that's much easier to hide than getting drunk. And I think is, dare I say, even more insidious. So that's why we have a thing about that. Um, if, we were a bunch of, if, if, if we were a bunch of people who got drunk all the time, I don't think generally that's all of us, uh, then we would have a book maybe about getting drunk out there. Uh, various questions related to uh, people with LGBTQ backgrounds. And I have too many notes on here really to say anything. I guess this has not been anything new. The, uh, we might errone- erroneously think that now we have it figured out. After 2,000 years, this is, the, this is the moment where we actually have like the truth. Or even 4,000 years, this is the moment where we have the truth. Um, from the first century AD, the way the early, or second century AD, the way the early church was described, uh, and this was described as positive and negative, that um, Christians were stingy with their bodies and generous with their money where the Romans were known to be generous with their bodies and stingy with their money. Now the Roman government loved that Christians were generous with their money because they were taking care of all the poor that the Roman government wasn't taking care of. The Roman government and the Roman citizens did not love that Christians were stingy with their bodies because it meant they couldn't basically be a part of normal social interactions. Uh, Or they were kind of really kind of regarded as highly suspicious. So it's always, it's never not been the case we're an outside culture wagging their finger at the Christian church saying, aren't you guys going to get your stuff together? Your morality is like, wrong-headed. Um, and that will always continue to be the case. And the pressures are going to be there. I get it. I, mean, it's, I, can underst- I can completely understand the want to be walking in what might feel like a cultural and spiritual wilderness and wanting to just kind of say, you know what? This, with this particular thing, I'm just going to kind of not really go with what the Bible says. I totally get that. That's a completely legitimate like, want and desire. Who hasn't felt that? Everyone does. Uh, but what we're called to surrender to as Christians is not what's easy, it's not what we would like to do uh, all the time, but it's how Jesus kinda calls us to live. And that's not always easy. I mean, he's talking here about plucking your eye out and taking your arm off. I mean, he doesn't literally mean take your eye out. Uh, but basically, it's, he's saying this is a difficult thing. For any Christian, I mean, one of the basic kind of fundamental things of being Christian, one of the first things is to deny yourself, and it might be deny yourself status in society. Christians have never, Christians have always been seen as fools, right? And that's just something that um, sucks. I don't like that. That's a horrible thing. I don't want to be seen as a fool, but yet I probably will be seen as a fool, and I I will be called many names, as I have been in the past, um, for things that, you know, how I hate all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. I, here's another thing too. I think the left and the right. I'm hoping through these kind of general thing, I'm going to cover a lot of answers. But definitely send them if if I don't. Um, for whatever reason, well, I for a, a, probably a couple of very specific reasons. The left and the right both obsess over morality. They are obsessed over morality. Christians are not called to obsess over morality the way conservative or liberal cultures do. We're called to kind of live a different way. Yes, we're not going to live, in a, um, live this way, we're not going to live this way, we're going to live this other way, but we don't obsess over, over our morality. Uh, what Christians believe about how Christians are to live out their sexuality really only matters if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He's resurrected. If you don't believe that, it doesn't matter what Christians teach about sex and morality. If you don't believe in the person of Jesus, then it doesn't actually matter what we say about all the other things that are just secondary or even like tertiary. Okay, what else in here? Um, speaking of moralism, uh, Romans 15.1 calls Christians to welcome people, welcome others as Jesus has welcomed us. How has Jesus welcomed us? When he came to us, did we, was it because we were doing really well? Oh, those guys have their stuff together. I'm gonna welcome them to my kingdom. No, we hadn't had a clue. We were so broken, we we're so messed up. Like that's a list of some of the things we were, and there's a longer list of all the other horrible things we were as well. with Jesus and But even though we didn't have our stuff together, Jesus embraced us and welcomed us. And that's how Christians are called to live. I totally get Christians don't often live that way, and that's a shame on us. But that's how we are called to live. That's how the Bible teaches us to live. So I think Christians probably have more of an issue with living out that welcome than they do actually living out sexual, their own kind of sexual morality things how Jesus calls us to live. Okay, I'm, that's a bit of a soapbox thing. I'll, um, all right. Uh, does sinning make me a hypocrite? No, it makes you a human. It makes you a human being. Jesus does not demand perfection. He requires our hearts. And that's something different altogether. Nobody's perfect, and God knows that even better than you do. And yet... And yet, he's still crazy about you. He still pursues you. He still loves you and still wants to have a relationship. But he's so crazy. He cares. He spends way more of his time on you than you do on him. So what does make one a hypocrite? Well, it really is like the general character of a person. If I say and act this way, but then say and act this way also, that's what being a hypocrite is. If I, if I say I'm a Christian and I don't welcome people from LGBTQ backgrounds or like have that little joke about them, whatever the thing is, that's being a hypocrite because that's not the character you're called to live out. So, but, so, so if you find yourself being a hypocrite, what do we do? Well, we're all going to find ourselves being hypocrites because none of us are perfect. What do we do? The same thing anyone does in any situation. We bring ourselves to Jesus. Um, let me look really quick to see if someone sent other questions. We will sing in a moment, and I will stop talking in a moment, I promise. Um, let's see here. Ah, so uh, I'm just going to read this out, and we'll see what it says as I go. Um, so are you saying that being LGBTQ plus is a problem that needs fixing, much like lusting or adultery? Should the LGBTQ community come to God to work through their problems and become straight? they are broken people to be transformed into what? Sorry if I'm misunderstanding what you're saying. Um, great question. and uh, And that was actually in this <laughs> massive list of things as well. Christians, Jesus does not... Jesus does not call anyone to convert to heterosexuality. He doesn't call anyone to convert. He doesn't call anyone to convert to being cisgendered. He, he calls people to follow him, and that's going to be different from people from any background. Now it's quite clear on uh, on same sex. Uh, uh, um, Couples and marriage and things like that in the Bible, that's not—that's a whole other thing we just don't really have time to get into. But the Bible is very clear on that, and maybe that's something we can have in another conversation at some other point. Uh, it, it, but uh, the way, basically, the, the way the Bible describes marriage is between a man and a woman, and sex it being in marriage. Therefore, the idea from that would be sex outside of that marriage, whatever it looks like, is equally as bad. Now, I don't think LGBTQ plus people need to be fixed as much as anyone else needs to be fixed. I think they're broken not because they come from a lesbian background or whatever, because they're a human being, just as much as I'm broken. Uh, So if if that seems like, I don't really understand that. I would love to talk more about that. I just don't have the time, um, because I really do think for the church, it's a bit of a justice issue than it is a morality issue. I think the church obsesses over the morality thing uh, to the detriment of not talking about the justice thing. Maybe just to end, before we all sing together, um, there's a story of, uh, of uh, when Jesus interacted with a woman who was brought to him, caught in the act of adultery. How did that work? Um, and she's brought to him, and people are basically like, yeah, should we stone her, Jesus? Should we kill her? Yeah, let's kill her. Um, but Jesus doesn't do that. He tells the woman, you're forgiven, go and sin no more. Uh, and there's three things maybe just take away from that as we end on that for now, and we can. This is a conversation that needs to keep kind of keep going. Um, the first is how are we basically how, how are we called to live? What does the way of Jesus look like? The first thing it looks like loving unconditionally because that's what Jesus did, and the focus on unconditionally. Jesus didn't know this woman. I mean, he did because he's God. He said you're forgiven. She didn't say oh please forgive me, Jesus. Jesus said you're forgiven. So love unconditionally. The second one is we're called to seek other people's wholeness, not in the way that we think is best first, and the way that Jesus thinks is best first. Because Jesus, out of the grace of being forgiven, that continued grace, Jesus says, "Go and sin no more." So it isn't like you're forgiven. I'll go do whatever you want. You're forgiven, and then this is the way to live for you to kind of to stay in this wholeness. But the third thing that Jesus did is he was against. We're called to be the rebellious people of God, is what I would say. Because what Jesus did is he was against and is all about taking on that patriarchal, self-righteous, pharisaical way of living. Christ is against that, the, the, the mob. He's, he's uh, for the needy. These people caught the woman in the act of adultery. Where's the guy? Notice he's not there. And how did, she, how did they catch her in the act? Was it a setup? What was the deal here? Like, obviously, it's all like the system is against this poor woman who basically can't really defend herself in that situation. So we should love, just like the way Jesus tells us to, uh, models for us, we should love unconditionally, we should seek others' wholeness, and we should be the rebellious people of God. That's a really difficult way to live. It's the most difficult way to live. Um, but it's a good way to live. I, uh, okay, I gotta stop. There's too many things in here. I would love to talk more about this. And we can, if you'd like, in other settings. Um, What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing. And this might have spurred on more questions than it gave answers and that's okay too because this isn't a one-off thing. The way of Jesus is a kind of lifelong commitment of walking and growing and learning from each other. Um, So let me pray and then we'll sing together. God, we thank you that uh, you have given us yourself. We thank you that you have given us uh, a way to find wholeness in a world that,